Hell yeah. <laughs> Casablanca. <laughs> Hell yeah. Casablanca. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklip. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap. I watched Amadeus for the first time in Amanda. What did you watch? I watched Casablanca. For the first time. I'm just going to say it right off the bat. The basis of this podcast <laughs> is it doesn't matter when you get to the movie, it's that you get to the movie. So I'm going to just... I feel like this is the biggest one we've done so far of like, yeah. holy shit, I can't believe you've not seen that. Um, but also in my defense, we put it on the list early um, because I hadn't seen it. So I've seen it now. So now that that narration doesn't exist. No one can yell at me anymore. Exactly. And you know what? That's the point of this pod, like you said. Um, and if you have also not seen Casablanca until maybe we put this pot out or still haven't watched it and you're listening to us because you just like hearing our voices like first of all thank you second of all we hope that uh you feel seen through Amanda's experience that we'll talk about soon um and maybe afterward you'll listen to some classical music to vibe I'd say that August 9th 2022 is a perfect time to watch Casablanca for the first time before we get to these best picture winners how are you doing friend what you've been watching I'm doing well. Um, been doing a little bit of traveling, which is fun. I, besides seeing you, I like hadn't really done any traveling this year. So now it's like all sort of happening for me at the end of the year. Um, just went to Los Angeles to see our friend Kelsey for her birthday. We love a Woo. cancer queen and all of our other friends that are out there, which was a great time. And then by the time this comes out, I will have just gotten back from a like a little college reunion trip to San Diego. So I'm doing a little bit of traveling. Um, but in the meantime, have been watching some stuff. Another really big one that I got off my list finally was August Osage County um, with Meryl Streep. Incredible. Meryl Streep, great actress. Who, Who knew? knew? Incre- incredible. I watched Minority Report with uh, nice. uh, Tom Cruise. I had like understood the premise, but I like didn't understand, obviously, like the full context of the story. It's an extremely of that time graphics wise, but holds up. I thought yeah. it was pretty great. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I watched um, Not Another Teen Movie just because I hadn't <laughs> seen it before. Um, trying to, you know, the list of blind spots is varied. From yeah. Casablanca to Not Another Teen Movie, we just want you to watch movies, so it doesn't yes. matter. Love a movie. And then TV Corner with Amanda, I binged both seasons of The Flight Attendant on HBO. Show slaps. Like oh, yeah? I, I thought it was like a little overrated, but I hadn't seen it. I don't know where I got this idea from. <laughs> so good. Are you ready for your bingo sheet? One of my favorite actors from Girls is on that show. Naturally. <laughs> Shoshana forever, but it is really good. It's sort of like a cat and mouse murder mystery um, while hijinks ensue in personal lives. Um, but it has like a real heart to it. Like there's a lot of like like emotional depth to it as well. Um, it's like 16 episodes, both seasons or something like that. Definitely worth watching if you got a couple days off. Um, so that's what I've been up to. How are you? What have you been up to? What have you been watching? I'm good. Um, watching lots of stuff as usual. Kind of cranked out some summer movies with my partner and I watched Caddyshack for the first time. What a vibe of a movie. Drugs in the 80s were crazy. Yeah, lots is, of them. Lots of drugs. What I'll say. I also watched, finally, Petit Memo. 
the <laughs> Celine Sciamma's movie from last year, this year, who knows like what we're counting that as. Incredibly sweet and touching movie. Absolutely loved it. So beautiful. I thought it was the same kid, like, you know, Parent Trap style. Turns out actual twins and they're both amazing. Like, I, it's just uh, such a beautiful, touching movie. Also, like, 80 minutes. Spectacular. Yeah. Just, like, a really stunning representation of grief and, like, understanding. It's so good. Um, I also watched uh, Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together. Devastating love story. Tony Leung, Leslie Chung, um, which ripped and will rip your soul out. Nobody uh, makes movies about love like Wong Kar Wai in the most devastating or lovely ways. And then I watched a boxing movie called Fat City with a very young Jeff Bridges that was like very Uh surprisingly awesome, Um, kind of sad, but in like an endearing way and kind of had that like middle of America, um, just making it the way you can kind of way. Like we don't really see boxing movies and sports movies like this one, I think as much um, these days. And then the last thing that has just taken my breath away um, it seems like that's what uh, the main lead is trying to do in the movie is the Don't Worry Darling trailer. The second one dropped um, today that we are recording and looks incredibly spooky, which is, you know, we got to stretch stretch the muscles there. But the things that I will do to watch uh, th- that cast, Gemma Chan, Chris Pine, Nick Harry Kroll. Styles, <laughs> Nick Kroll, and oh, um, Florence Pugh using an American yeah. accent. Yeah, Florence yeah. Pugh speaks in an American accent better than I speak. In an American mm-hmm. accent. She's incredible. This movie looks fucking amazing. Um, yeah. And if it's not good, I'll turn a blind eye. I don't care. <laughs> this this is like going to be in, probably in my top five movies of the year. There are so many beautiful people. I feel like we've talked about like people at their hottest in a movie together. Yeah. Like Ocean's Eleven is one of them. Um, it might be this. I can't think of other ones. I'm, black, I'm blanking out on any other candidate, but... Um. Yeah. Don't worry, darling. In September, it's gonna be Hot spectacular. In movies, all I can think of is Rear Window. <laughs> <laughs> that that's just one person's hottest. Uh, now I'm really blanking, but which is you're not gonna like this guy in wheelchair. Don't remember his, the actor's name. Jimmy Stewart. Thank you very much. I knew I knew it, but I couldn't remember it. Uh, Jimmy Stewart in a wheelchair is still pretty hot. They're, they look hot together, the two of them, very beautiful. Um, yeah. The other one I thought of was um, The Sound of Music. <laughs> <laughs> Julie Andrews and Chris Plummer, gorgeous. That's fair. I, I, They're I can... so pretty in that movie. <laughs> oh, my God. This is where my brain went. Oh, Ben, ben Affleck and uh, Anna de Armas in That's Deep fair. Water. Those are hot Creed. people. Creed. Creed. Great, great one. Great Even one, Sylvester very... Stallone looks like a hot old man. Sure, he's in there. It's a, uh, it's good, it's good shit. Uh, but don't worry, darling. I feel like he's gonna take the cake as just like hottest people doing the spookiest stuff um, for a yeah. That's for a while. I'm personally worried about how stressful the movie looks, um, which I understand is like a positive effect of that brand of movie. Um, yeah. I'm just a wuss, but yeah, I'm trying to. Uh, consume as little information about it as possible i don't know how well i'm gonna do but i think i'm sticking to trailers and like no other like interviews behind the scenes information like i'm trying to do that for nope right now and i feel like i'm just being like 
bombarded. I know that embargo sides. lifted and it was just floodgates. <sighs> I know it's tough. Okay, but let's uh, let, let's shift. Um, Amadeus and Casablanca. Amanda, why don't you tell people why we paired these movies? We were going through a list of all of the movies that had won Best Picture before and sort of starring the ones that we had seen. And these were two just like huge blind spots for the both of us that the other one really loves and wants to talk about. Um, So that's why we picked it. But also we're just trying to get all of the corners of classic cinema. And I feel like this was a great uh, combination. There's a lot of... They're both like movie epics, movie classics. There's a love story. There's a lot going on. So uh, I'm excited. Uh, songs played on piano that other people are upset about. That's like a common theme in the, True. In the movie. Yeah. <laughs> music is important in these yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To quote the Dob Mob, music is music is important. <laughs> um, so that's why we swapped them. And I'm, I'm really glad we did. I feel like these are actually... An oddly good double feature? Maybe I'm crazy. I don't double feature very often. You're more the connoisseur in that. I wouldn't say these were a good double feature, but it wasn't jarring the way like Rush Hour and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo were. <laughs> well, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think, you know, these are obviously Best Picture winners. And so let's not get too much into it. Let's flip the coin. Amanda, call it. Heads. It's heads. Nice. Let's talk about Casablanca. Hell yeah. Amanda, we'll always have blind spotters. You watched Casablanca. Tell me what happened in this movie. All right. In the 1940s, Casablanca, Morocco, Africa is a port where people can go to Lisbon to get to America while like averting uh, Europe um, while the war is going on. I hope I got that right. That's kind of what I understand. Um, Rick Blaine, played by Humphrey Bogart, is an expatriate who owns a bar called Rick's Cafe American. It's sort of a safe haven for everybody, including the Americans, the Germans, and the French during World War II, as they're waiting in Casablanca to get back to America. Customer and crook Ugarte boasts to Rick that he has these letters of transit to get to Lisbon that he obtained by killing two German couriers. These are priceless. This is what everyone is in Casablanca to get, basically. He asks Rick to hold them for him, and before he can get them back, Ugarte is arrested and then dies in prison. Back at the bar, in walks Ilsa Lund, played by Ingrid Bergman, an ex-lover of Rick's and the reason why he's so cynical. She is there with her husband, Victor Laszlo, who is a Czech refugee and a resistance leader. They need these letters in order to escape to America, and continue Victor's work. Meanwhile, Major Strasser has come to Casablanca to stop Victor from returning to America. Victor is asking around how he can get to America when Rick's business rival, Senor Ferrari, says he thinks Rick might have these papers that Ugarte had. Victor tries to buy the papers from Rick, and he declines, telling him to ask Ilsa why he won't give him the papers. It's because Ilsa and Rick were in love in Paris and she left without a trace and Rick is still upset about it. Back at the bar, the Germans and the French are singing their national anthems over each other and Rick gives in to Victor's request and sort of like gives a nod to him that he's on his side and then the club is shut down. Later, Ilsa confronts Rick with a gun and she confesses that she is still in love with him she explains that when they fell in love in paris she thought victor was dead from trying to escape a concentration camp but when she found out that he was alive she left rick to go back to her husband 
He low-key understands, even though he's upset, so he gives her the papers and believes that she will stay with Rick when Victor leaves. Victor then convinces Rick to make sure Ilsa is on the plane home as well, away from Rick, but mostly back to America where she can be safe. The police come to arrest Victor, and Rick sort of like double times them and promises to hand over Victor for having the secret papers. When this all goes down, Rick pulls a gun on the police, allowing Ilsa and Victor to escape safely on the on the plane. Some of the most famous lines in all of movie history are said, like, all within each other. And then the movie ends while uh, Rick is... Uh, Rick is safe from the police and Victor and Ilsa are on the plane back to America. There might have been some confusion, but how did I do? Solid. Honestly, the plot is a little confusing, especially since we're 80 years since the release of this movie. So some shorthand stuff isn't a shorthand to us. Um, we, I, I would safe to say we don't know uh, the intricacies of World War II geopolitics as well as you know people who are living in that time. So I think you did great. Thank you. Uh, I feel like I got the gist of it, but the papers and the it was a little confusing, but that's okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, this seems like a dumb question, but why did you pick this movie? <laughs> I'm really just a big fan of uh, North Africa geopolitics. No, um, this is one of the greatest American films ever made. It's top three yeah. on the AFI list, top 100 on Sight and Sound's 2012 list. Um, Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, one of the most famous love stories in all of cinema. Um, and, you know, we joke about not having anything particularly interesting or new to say about these classics. But, like, um, I feel like it's still uh, perspective counts and it, it speaks to the timelessness of a movie like Casablanca for which there are few. So um, with that said, what were your first impressions? What stood out to you? So I've always been sold that this is like a romantic film, which it definitely has like a beautiful, confusing love story in the middle of it. But there was a lot more politics than I was, than I was expecting. It's sort of like there's a romance while politics are happening um, and that the political for is in the forefront. Um, I, like everyone's dad, I was like really into World War II in high school <laughs> and like learning all of the geopolitics about it. So I actually, this is nerdy as hell. I like reread my old <laughs> history books sometimes about like the World War One to World War Two, like those few years in between. I don't know. I like history, but um, I had to remember. That is uh, wild. I remember like the big details, like of course I knew that like the French and the Czech and the Germans and like the Americans, like who's on whose side and who is against each other and like all these sorts of things. But I think I had to remember like all of the little details. Um, the Italians are in there as well. By naming a man Signor Ferrari, the Italians are fucking in there as well. <laughs> but um, it, I think because I wasn't expecting such a politically charged movie, I like had a little bit of a harder time keeping up, but I did watch it again almost immediately. And oh, wow. it was much easier the second time. Um, I wasn't like actively trying to figure out what was happening. I was just like watching, which was nice. It is a movie that is incredibly rewarding the more you watch it because I remember that being my experience watching it for the first time as well is being really confused as to what is happening who was trying to go where? Why is Victor Laszlo important? Is are, 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 is the cop 
a friend? Is he not? There's a lot of double speak. You don't really understand why Rick is the way he is until you understand the love story and then everything else makes sense that happens before that reveal. Um, but yeah, it's 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 fun that like this movie, you know, American production filmed in Burbank on a studio a lot, but it's very much like a European movie. Like uh, America is just a place. It's not it's not a character at all. It's just a destination. And it's about these people who are in Europe trying to get to America or trying to just flee these different um, troubles that are coming with the war. So um, I, I think we'll talk more about how wild it was that it was filmed when it was and created when it was and all the messaging that was in there. But uh, it is, I don't know if fun's the right word or intriguing or it is fascinating that um, this movie touches on so many things. And of course the thing that people come out of it with is the love story and the romance of it all. Because like, I mean, when you get two leads like that with the charisma of Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, um, it's hard to not pull that away. I think it's good that you noted that America is just a place to get to a destination. It's not really a character in this movie because I was also thinking like Casablanca is also not a main player in this movie, despite it being the location of everything, literally the name of the movie, all of these things. It's sort of just like a background in which things are set. Um, And I thought that that was uh, an interesting thing at the end. I was like, oh, I thought there would be more more like Morocco (laughs) in this movie, but there really isn't. Yeah, and I mean, but it's still a very international story. It's a refugee story, honestly. Yeah. And um I love that first scene when you're when you get to Rick's Cafe and you're kind of hearing all these little snippets of what everybody's trying to do and trying to sell and trying to get out of and it really kind of builds the world really quickly. Yeah, I agree. Um the next thing that really stood out to me is that Ingrid Bergman is so beautiful. Yes. Her skin in the black and white lighting is impeccable yes <laughs> she's so beautiful <laughs> uh the cinematographer is arthur edison and he knew what he was working with because every shot of ingrid bergman especially the close-ups is lit differently to be like hey america look at how beautiful and stoic and just uh empathetic this face is and obviously ingrid bergman is one of the most classic stars ever but um it's still stunning yeah she's gorgeous um Uh, and then the other thing that i've thought a lot about is that this movie does move really quickly but not in a way where you can't keep up as much mm -hmm. similar to how i felt the first time i watched the thin man i was like holy cow there are so many words in such a small amount of time which is part of the like charm of that movie and a movie i really liked yeah um but it really does just like have sort of like a simple plot and that's not derogatory that is praising and it just moves along that plot really nicely there's only a few characters you sort of know like who's on the good side who's on the bad side and you move right along and i love that i think that last sequence is starts with like 15 minutes to go like they get to the uh to rick's to hand over the letters of transit i think with like maybe 12 or 10 minutes left in the movie and there's so much packed in there and there's so many classic moments packed in there it's hyper efficient without feeling like you have lost an opportunity to learn about these characters or to see more about uh what these characters are about and i think that's so deft in how they handled all of that so with that you know what have you thought about the most since watching the movie 
I've really thought about how great the script was. Not only do you have some of these most famous lines in all of cinema, but the movie is written very straightforward. It's the way people really talk to each other. Um, and it makes it really easy to keep up with. And I thought mm-hmm. that that was great. Um, obviously, we're swapping these movies because they both won Best Picture. But it, the script was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. And I thought that that was uh, deserved. Yeah. And it, it's fun to see how quickly these characters are built. Um, a lot of times we talk about or just as generally thought that when movies have exposition dumps, um, that's a case of a movie's script kind of struggling a little bit. And maybe it's old movie bias or classic movie vibes or whatever, but saying a lot without saying a lot, yeah. um, and but also not withholding. And I think that balance is so hard to hit and the movie makes it seem so easy. Yeah, I have a thing about uh, this is probably like not my worst take, but like... Oh, let's hear it. After my after yeah. the last episode, no, this is so worse. many bad this is takes worse. from me. This isn't a take so much as like a, a flaw of mine. Here's looking at you, kid, bugs me. Like, grammatically. Oh. <laughs> like, what does that mean? What is he... Here's looking at you, kid. Like, what... And? What does that mean? I'm trying to figure out how to explain it. Um, here's looking at you... Oh, God. If someone said that to me, I'd marry them on the spot. Um, (laughs) here's looking at you kid is sort of like I'm doing this for you I'm glad you're here this is all for you like it is a way of flirting of course but I think it is sort of like man we're here together especially with their history of like being together than being ripped apart like I'm looking at you and like as someone who has both of us have experienced long distance relationships like being looking is like so important especially after all this time apart so he's basically just being like Ugh, hands up in the air i'll do anything for you now that i'm here looking at you so here's looking at you kid does that make sense it does a little bit the more i hear the sentence or look at the sentence it doesn't make sense however i will give credit that it makes sense because humphrey bogart is so charming and like guys wish they could be bogey and but like when guys try to be bogey like it's corny it's it's not right he his persona that he created and was famous for rick in casablanca pipeline to harrison ford in um star wars in the cantina like the the stoic gruff i stick my neck out for nobody no nonsense has an answer and a cool response to everything no matter what stays calm under pressure like whenever he's being interrogated by um the germans and he goes are my eyes really brown like even though he has the most pressure on him and they're like trying to find a way to basically send him to a concentration camp um and what's crazy is uh he he wasn't like a huge movie star he was known to play these like kind of darker characters and uh when they cast humphrey bogart a studio head allegedly said who the hell wants to kiss humphrey bogart which like i get but also it is a testament to again his his presence i guess is the only way to say it because he's not what we would call a a conventionally handsome man, I think. Honestly, you can get by on vibes alone a lot. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the time it's vibes. (laughs) I I think there's a 1% of people that could pull off, like maybe in real life saying, here's looking at you, kid, and like it not being corny. Granted, you're quoting a movie at this point, so it's not the same, but Humphrey Bogart is, uh, he's just the coolest man alive in this movie. Um, what else have you thought about the most since watching? Clearly, I've been thinking a lot about Humphrey Bogart, but what about you? Another thing I've been thinking a lot about uh, is 
as time goes by is a motherfucking banger that song is so good it's a song i knew outside of the movie i knew the song before and i think i didn't realize that it was famous because it was in this movie so i like when he's when sam is playing it i was like oh i love this song and then as i was looking it up (laughs) later i was like oh this song is is from this movie that's why it's famous i had no idea um so uh afi does like a big they do big movie lists but they do like subsections of movie lists um and one of them is about most famous songs in movies and as time goes by is second right under um somewhere over the rainbow uh, which i think is appropriate um and just like the lyrics they're so they're so nice they're so simple just like you must remember this a kiss is just a kiss a sigh is just a sigh the fundamental things as as time goes by it's so lovely (laughs) yeah Dooley wilson as sam apparently had to fake play the piano he was a drummer and he was one of the few american-born members of the cast i love the response to the song from uh humphrey bogart who among us hasn't been just in shambles uh hearing a song that reminds them of a past heartbreak um yes (laughs) (laughs) and then even at the end of the movie uh the the song kind of floats in a little bit as uh bogey's making his big speech yeah it was just so lovely and fun to find out that this is why it's famous yeah um another thing i've thought a lot about is that this is an actually perfect movie poster like i with like the red casablanca letters across the bottom the font uh, and like every movie poster of this time sort of looks like this but there's just a i I hate to keep using the word simple because it's not simple but just like the straightforwardness of the way everything looks you sort of get everything you need to know about it in this um, in this poster and just the big splash of red right across the bottom is so lovely. And it's not, it's not, it's not corny looking. It's aged really well. Um, and I kind of wish they made movie posters that looked like this. It's just, an, to me, it's an instant classic that goes with such an instantly classic movie. I don't think you should give yourself a hard time about keep, keep continuously calling it simple. It, it is not a fussy movie nothing about it is fussy nothing about it is overcomplicated in the best way i think even like in the cinematography there's like two moving shots like one when you're going through ricks and one that maybe i'm forgetting but other than that it's just some zooms and some cuts like this isn't athletic filmmaking by any means but that is a testament to like not every athletic film is a good one and not every unathletic film um is a bad one uh and yeah. if athletic films are ones that you know you have a lot of one shots or you have a lot of um, experimentation and that's all great that's part of movies but i think of like christopher nolan as like a very athletic director yeah or like 1917 is a recent yeah. movie that's incredibly athletic yeah um so but casablanca you know timeless and it's yeah. for the reasons that you've been kind of illustrating so here's a here's a crazy sentiment that i've also been thinking a lot about this movie re- reminds me a lot of Jerry Maguire. <laughs> you have so much to explain. That's fine. I, I have a me talk. I love to talk. Um, <laughs> Jerry Maguire is also a movie I watched very late in life and maybe in the last three years. Um, and it was a film that like as it was happening, I was like, oh, that's a very famous m- movie line. That's fun. Oh, that's another one. Oh, that's another one. 
is every famous movie line in this movie. And it was just like, <laughs> Casablanca is very similar where like, as it was going along, I was like, oh, I didn't know that was from this one. Okay. Like, I know that line. Like the very end where it's like, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I'm like, oh, I had no idea that was Casablanca. But like, I know that line. And yeah. like Jerry Maguire sort of reminded me of that. This is not a, a complete one-to-one comparison. Don't get me wrong. But sort of my reaction to it is very similar. Um, and also like, two movies that were sold to me as as like romantic films where like romance is sort of in the background of this other thing that's going on a political movie for Casablanca like a sports movie for Jerry Maguire um so both of those are happening and uh here's looking at you kid and you had me at hello it seemed pretty comparable those are the only compare those are the only like ways that they are related but i think like my reaction to it is how i feel like they are connected <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, that's a fair argument. I see where Thank you're you. going with it. I can see all the connections. Um, my question to you is this. What would be more effective for you? Would it be a guy coming up to you and saying, here's looking at you, kid, or Tom Cruise being like, you complete me? Like, which one are you trying to lean toward? It's tough because I'm a real hopeless romantic. So like the moment it's like sort of a, a romance that's that's doomed from the beginning i'm like pretty in um i think (laughs) (laughs) that's like my toxic trait um but i think instead of uh here's looking at you kid and that whole speech i'm really going for we'll always have paris like that tugs at my heartstrings a little bit um and you complete me is now corny because of jerry Maguire, but like outside of that realm that's pretty good. <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> so are you saying that Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire ruined you complete me as a yeah, phrase? Absolutely. Because can you, I can't think, like if someone was like, you complete me, I'd be like, mm, that's like a corny movie line now. I, I couldn't say it without like pretending to be Tom Cruise crying face. Yeah, absolutely. I also can't say it without thinking of um, Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. So Casablanca reminds you of Jerry Maguire, which reminds you of Austin Powers. No, Thusly, just that one line. Casablanca reminds you of Austin Powers. <laughs> no, just that. I mean, Austin Powers obviously took the line from Jerry Maguire. <laughs> but that's where my mind goes when I hear you complete me. That's why I think you had me at hello is a more romantic line from Jerry Maguire. I love your mind, Amanda. Thank you. It's a mess up here, Um, but it's full of pop culture. (laughs) There we go. That's why we have this podcast. Um, What else have you thought about most since watching? I think this is the most important part is that it is nutso bananas that this movie was filmed and released about the war during the war. Yeah. Like the middle of it. That's nuts. That is crazy. Um, and the, the, like the world war, the yeah, second the, one. Correct. And and like, I don't know. I feel like it's really different because there were definitely movies about like the war on Iraq and the war on terror that came out in the last 20 something years. That there's a million been. Vietnam movies, especially. And there's ones that came out during Vietnam. Absolutely. But but like, I don't know. I, I feel like they're a little different. Like. Definitely, like, the movies I'm thinking of that are about the war on terror are very, like, Mm -hmm. pro-America. They have, like, a political thing to tell you. And this was also a war not fought on our soil. Not that World War II was, but 
it is a little different. There's a lot of racial elements that were involved in the war on terror that weren't weren't as involved in America's involvement in World War II um, and things like that, which, you know, is a whole different topic. But um, it just nothing has been at this caliber. Obviously, this is why it is a world war and that there has not been another one. So it is just unbelievable to me that they made this movie and it has like a lot of layers to it so something that i looked up that or i found during my research was that many of the people who played nazis in the film were actually jewish people who had escaped nazi controlled germany so crazy crazy That's uh, that's like truly an unbelievable fact. It also could be false, but I don't believe it. Like I believe <laughs> I believe it's real. Um, yeah. But that that's like how quickly this was coming out during the time is that people who are impacted by the subject of this movie are in this movie. Yeah, it's a heavily European cast too. It, like it just makes that scene where they sing the anthems, the dueling anthems in Ricks, that much more powerful. Because when I was watching it for the first time, I'm like, oh. This is a moment like look at Victor Laszlo. I can see why he is the guy that he is. Um, I thought it was strange that they're cutting to different people crying and holding on people's faces for a long time. But then when you get that context and understand what was going on and um, how directly it was impacted, it was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like that's so heavy. Um, Not to kind of reduce it to like saying, oh, shit, that's heavy. But like it's it's amazing, you know, saying we'll always have Paris in a movie during that time is heavy Um, and and maybe it wasn't supposed to be like that much of a loaded line or that uh, but you know at least that scene with the dueling anthems is loaded for like very specific and broad reasons as well so um it can't be said enough how wild it was and um just amazing that this movie was able to kind of capture that and still remain timeless It is a moment where if you understand the deeper context hits heavier, but if you don't understand the deeper context, you still get the idea like that. That that moment doesn't roll over you. If you don't understand that move, that moment still feels like it, it still has weight to it, but with other context is just a real heft. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, that's a great point. So I think that kind of leads into our next little subsection Obviously, some research went into that, but you know, what were some of the other first things you looked up about the movie? So I just wanted to know more about the background. Uh, this is a movie that I knew as like a movie fan about the movie's popularity, but I don't know like who wrote it, who was involved, any of those things. So it was written by Julius and Philip Epstein, who are not related to Jeffrey Epstein, thank goodness, um, and was also written by Howard Koch, who is also not related to the Koch brothers. Thank goodness. Uh, two pieces of information that when those names flashed up on my screen, I was like, oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> so glad to hear that those, those people are not related to these. Um, so after the success of this movie, Howard Koch went on to write the screenplay for Mission to Moscow at the request of Jack L. Warner from the Warner Brothers, um, sort of keeping it in the in the family, wanting to make another film. Um, but because of its positive portrayal of Stalin and the Soviets when it was Yikes. written in 1943, he was fired from the production and he was blacklisted from all of Hollywood by 1951. He moved to Britain with his wife for a long time and then finally moved back to upstate New York where he died not that long after. That is 
wild that like he was asked by a movie like studio executive to make a movie about moscow and then it was like not written the way they wanted and then he never made a movie again tough this tough is look for our guy this is the issue about writing movies about the war that's currently happening <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot of like perspective yeah you gotta really just pick the right side and uh my guy did not have the uh the best ideas there that's that's that it's that's that's crazy the fact that howard coke helped write casablanca and then was blacklisted never wrote another movie <laughs> that's un- <laughs> that's unbelievable like that's so wild so that was something i found out while researching who was sort of involved in this film that really um like caught me by surprise yeah and i think um it speaks to you know when you think of casablanca you're not thinking, oh, this auteur made it or these famous writers made it. Um, even the director, Michael Curtis, isn't really like acclaimed as maybe he should be. And he's, he made Yankee Doodle Dandy in the same year. He made White Christmas, which is a personal favorite of mine. Yeah, um, love that one. He, he has a lot of great credits to him, but it's not like, oh, here's a Michael Curtis movie. It's just it's Casablanca. Yeah, it's more a movie about these actors and the movie itself than it is about like everybody else involved. Yeah, exactly. Um, what else did you look up? Um, I knew it was uh, filmed on a set because it's very Burbank of 1940s. Um, very, ho- very old Hollywood. Um, but I wanted to know if the airplane hangar toward the end of the movie, one of the most famous scenes was like a real airplane hangar that you could like go to or something. Um, it is not. But the, the only set that was built for the movie was actually Rick's Cafe. The rest of it was all recycled sets from movies previously because they um, had a lot of uh, financial restrictions because of the war. So for all of Casablanca, they built one set. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. The rest of it was like an upcycled project. So I was thinking about in lieu of recent movies, uh, namely like Thor, Love and Thunder, um, <laughs> the Casablanca to Thor, Love and Thunder Hey, pipeline um <laughs> but i i i think i love more and i i have more like optimism about a movie whenever a creative person and a creative team have limitations on themselves like that and i'm thinking about like taika waititi and his earlier movies this is sounds so hipster his earlier movies and like even hunt for the wilder people and the budgets aren't huge for those movies and that forces like creativity and like problem solving and kind of allows those elements to shine through more um and i say all that to say like casablanca having you know some limitations on itself like that and it it helped keep the story simple the attempts of everything simple um and it just added to like what we keep talking about as like the the ease of which it is to watch this movie and consume it i think yeah Um, it's very grounded yeah, and it, it's just consumable. I think because we're in such a t- we're in 2022 and movies just keep building on themselves and it's about a lot of it is about like pushing the envelope like you know, who's going to make the next Mad Max Fury Road or who's going to Yeah. We have Avatar 2 coming out. And yet, a movie like Casablanca with these limitations delivered what it delivered. I think that's pretty special. We do want these grandiose movies and I'm sure Avatar 2 is going to like Like we love Top Gun Maverick. Love Top Gun Maverick. Enjoyed Thor, 
Love and Thunder. Like, yeah. I, I had a great time. I'm not we love looking, the MCU here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not like looking for Thor Love and Thunder to like walk into a target. Like, I like don't need this like level of groundedness from all my movies. But there is still like uh, there is still a big audience and a thirst and a want for something that is just in reality, the way movies were forced to back in the day. That's a well-taken point. Um, is there anything else you looked up about Casablanca? Yes. Uh, of all the gin joints in all the world, this girl's a gin drinker. And this movie made me want an like an ice-cold gin martini so bad. Yeah. So I, I looked up if I had the ingredients for a gin martini, and I did not. Damn. <laughs> so I was pretty upset. But it was too late for me to go get one. Um, uh, but I have been thinking a lot about gin martinis since I watched this movie. A uh, couple gin martini questions for you. Yes, let's one. hear it. What is your go-to gin martini order? Um, I get a gin martini up with uh, a lemon twist. That is my favorite. Nice. And then is there a institution in which you have your favorite gin martini? Yeah, actually. Uh, I've been drinking a lot of martinis lately. It just is so hot and they are so cold and easy to drink. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And probably the best gin martini I've had in a long time was at the Velveteen Rabbit with you. Oh, hell yeah. That was so good. I was so impressed. That's where you can go in Vegas for a great gin martini for Arizona folks. um, Hanny's makes a killer gin martini. Mm. But so does the Farish House, um, which is the restaurant right next to Songbird. Um, Amazing food, amazing drink menu, but they make a really good martini with a twist. Wow, I love so that. Um, fun fact, Velveteen Rabbit is where I had my first martini. Oh, amazing. Um, shots to the Velveteen Rabbit. Um, do you have any questions or, uh, I don't know, comments or just thoughts? Not a question, but sort of a comment. Um, in the David Chang Netflix show Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, um, which was sort of this like second show that he got, um, they he goes with uh, Chrissy Teigen. Apparently, they're celebrity friends to Casablanca, and they go to basically what is the real version of Rick's Bar, oh. and uh, they talk about Moroccan food. And they go to other places in Morocco, but they do, and and within Casablanca, and they the food looks amazing. And I they like go to a family's house. It's very, uh, it's very Anthony Bourdain esque. But mm. they they do go to um, sort of these like locations that are supposed to be reminiscent of the movie, which I thought was just a fun little, it's a, it's not a very long show. I think it's a couple yeah. episodes. So that's worth, fun. W- worth watching. Uh, Dave Chang also loves a ga- an establishment where you can gamble. So I understand. <laughs> also, also true. Um, that's all I have. Do you have anything for me? I have two questions and okay. this is the first one is the famous one. Um, you know, the one that is posed and debated in When Harry Met Sally. Would you want to stay with Rick in Casablanca or go with Victor on the plane? You got to go with Victor. You got, Do you? You got to get to safety, unfortunately. Like, I, I think it's just a matter of logistics at that point. Um, if your husband is going to be safest in America, you go to America. That's what I say. But I think like... I don't know if Victor's ever going to be a guy who's going to stay where he's safe. That's possible. That's a good point. Um, but it sort of like leads into my thought 
of this next question. So why don't you ask? Yeah. The next so okay. Question. So the second question, and it's one I only thought of watching it this most recent time, and I know the answer probably because it's 1940s Hollywood and not like 2022. But do you think Ilsa actually wanted to stay with Rick? Or was it all a seduction that she knew Rick was so whipped by her, basically, and so in love with her that, quote unquote, pretending was going to be the way to get Rick to put Victor and then thusly Ilsa on the plane? I think it's sort of a situation where like, no, 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 he's like totally going to leave his wife for me. Like, mm. <laughs> I think that <laughs> I feel like Ilsa loves Rick for sure, and what they had in Paris was very special. But I also think that the moment she found out her husband was alive, she left. Like, I think that Victor is who she loves and who she is with and who she wants to be with ultimately. So I think that she sort of, like, used their past relationship. And not all of it was false. I don't think that it was, like, pure... Obviously, there's feelings. Yeah, there's there's a lot of feelings. But she also knew that she could use those feelings to get what she really wanted. That's my that's my thought, which is also why I think that, like, you got to go with Victor. Like, you you already left Rick before. <laughs> before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, maybe I'm, think- a, maybe I'm, like, a romantic cynic. But, like, I also think that, like, her real true love is Victor... But I also think that she does love Rick. So it's, yeah, it's I, a little bit of a toss up. I think both can be true at once. I think and yeah. I'm also on team Ingrid Bergman has agency and is perfect. And Absolutely. so um, when she realizes the gun won't work yeah. on on Rick and he's kind of just waiting to die, that teasing some life to him would inspire him to you know do X, Y, Z. And she knows Rick is a stand up enough guy um, with enough heart in the quote unquote fight to want to get Victor home. And then also because men are men, we're like, Oh, we thought of this. It's, it's my choice to put you on the plane. Like you'll regret being with me because I'm Rick and I stick my neck out for nobody. And I have a cold heart and uh, banging bar. Like you don't want to be with me. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, no, like, of course not. And she was like, okay, (laughs) <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Bye. If I must, oh no, you're pushing me to. I'm so sorry. Oh, so we'll always have uh, Casablanca too. But we'll we'll always have. You'll always have Sam. I'm sorry, I ruined that song for you. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I just want to shout out uh, Claude Rain as Captain Louis Reno. Um, he is incredibly charming. The part where he's like, "Yeah, we have a fun game. They give me a check and I tear it up. It's terribly convenient." Like. He's chewing the scenery as much as anyone in this movie. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I love that he's the one that gets to walk off into the fog with Humphrey Bogart. Um, love a bromance. Yeah. So it's the start of a beautiful friendship. Lastly, would you watch this movie again? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just it goes on to that list um, of just movies you've made me watch that are instant comfort films that like if. If I'm if it's a cloudy day and I'm feeling low, not like emotionally low, but just like low key, mm-hmm. want to be hanging out. Maybe I'm a little under the weather, need need something easy to watch, uh, but still very fulfilling. I think Casablanca is a good one to put on. It only gets better every time you watch it. That's like, great. Yeah, I mean, I think I've I watched, watched it probably four times. I watched it for the first time, in, I think in 2019 or 2020, which, you know, crazy. But hey, no shame here. No um, shame here. And I've probably watched it three, four, five times since then. And each time I'm like, damn, this movie is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good Beautiful. pick, man. 
Casablanca, great movie. <laughs> hey, top three movie on the AFI list. You know, real, I did a lot of work there. Uh, that's uh, another one for the bingo sheet. Classic movie. D- wow, great movie. deep into the bucket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let's take a break. Let's talk about Amadeus. Uh, same yeah, vibe. Yeah. yeah, it's basically the same movie. This episode of Blind Spotters is not at all brought to you by BNC Camera. BNC Camera has been providing the Las Vegas Valley with equipment and repairs for photographers and videographers alike since 1971. From audio and lighting to drones, tripods, and of course, cameras and lenses, BNC has it all. I personally love popping in there to grab a few rolls of film and look at all the assortment of gear, but whatever you need, BNC has it. Check it out today. You won't be sorry. All right, Zach, let's get into it. Let's get with the from the classics to the classical, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Tell us what happened in the three hour epic of Amadeus. <laughs> yeah, just for clarity's sake, we did watch the director's cut, the three hour version of this movie that is not rated PG. Um, no, okay, it's, it's so the this, better one. Um, okay, so Amadeus, directed by Milos Forman, written by Peter Schaefer, based on Schaefer's play of the same name. The movie opens in 1823 with Italian composer Antonio Salieri, played by F. Murray Abraham, attempting suicide and ending up in a psychiatric hospital. There, a young priest named Father Volger, played by Richard Frank, visits him to hear more about Salieri's confession about apparently killing Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And Salieri goes on to recall basically his whole journey in music and his relationship with Mozart. We flash back to 1774. Salieri is the court composer for Emperor Joseph II, who was played by Jeffrey Jones in Vienna and begins hearing about Mozart. At a reception, Salieri sees Mozart in person and is shocked by how Mozart is this undisciplined, immature kind of fuckboy <laughs> and is convinced that God is using Mozart to mock Salieri because when Salieri wanted to pursue music, he prayed to God, promised that he would glorify him, and he promised him his chastity, all these things, if he could just become a great composer. Upon seeing Mozart and being frustrated by his, basically what he calls like dictating from God, he renounces God. Salieri goes on to renounce God and vows to destroy Mozart. Mozart is kind of at the same time employed by Emperor Joseph II to commission an opera, and Salieri more or less begins his attempts to undermine Mozart. And they kind of go back and forth on this, um, from spreading rumors about him to undermining his works, despite a strong admiration for him that he carries the whole time. Despite all this, Mozart continues producing great music, but not making very much money to the frustration of his father, who's played by Roy Dotrus. Very soon after, uh, his father dies, and in the wake of his father's death, Mozart writes Don Giovanni, and Salieri kind of concocts a scheme once he realizes that in that opera, one of the characters is kind of a stand-in for Mozart's father. Coincidentally, this character also wears a mask, so it gets pretty easy for Salieri. He dresses as the character and convinces Mozart his father wants to commission a requiem, one Salieri kind of plans to claim as his own once he kind of kills Mozart, basically. And he will play it at Mozart's funeral and the glory will shine upon Salieri. Mozart, who at this point is frustrated and dismayed and broke, 
decides to write an opera for his friend's theater, even though Constance wants him to finish the Requiem because it's more financially beneficial for them. After arguing, Constance leaves Mozart with her son, and then Mozart writes the Magic Flute, which is a great success, but it leaves him exhausted, and in the middle of one of the performances, he collapses. Salieri, who is in attendance, takes him home and takes Mozart's dictation to help finish the Requiem while Mozart sits in bed. In the morning, Mozart dies from exhaustion or, you know, who knows what else? Alcohol. He drinks a lot. He parties a lot. He's living his life, but not anymore. And so Constance returns around this time and demands that Salieri leave. She locks the Requiem away in a cabinet and Mozart dies from exhaustion and alcoholism and is buried in a mass grave. Even though we've been jumping back and forth to 1823, we go back to 1823 now and Father Volger is stunned and Salieri, meanwhile, muses that God would have rather destroyed Mozart than allow Salieri any glory as a composer. And the movie ends with Salieri being wheeled down a hallway, kind of absolving the different patients for whatever wrongs he thinks they might have done, and concludes with Mozart's high-pitched laugh playing. How did I do? I mean, that's basically it. I think the the most important part that maybe was left out is that, meanwhile, Mozart is like, destroying himself with alcohol and he's looking sicker and sicker and worse and worse as the movie goes on his Um, wigs are just untethered they're wonderful i love (laughs) obviously i love the pink one the most that's fair um Um, but yeah i mean that's that's the movie uh i hope you liked it (laughs) (laughs) i did i did it was batshit Um, yeah it is batshit so despite all that, despite the batshitness of it, it did win Best Picture. But why did you decide to pick this Best Picture winner? I mean, I think that's like kind of why I picked it. Like they just, I mean, here I am to say again, they just don't make movies like this anymore. But in general, they just don't make movies like this at all. The only thing I can think of that's at this same level of like epicness is like Braveheart, which is a very, very, very different movie. But it is like the immense dedication to the setting and the scene but there's like hundreds of thousands of extras like there are so many people in this movie and that was also something i was thinking a lot about as i was re-watching it of like oh now there would be like 30 extras and then they would just cgi everybody back in um but these are just like all real people all getting dressed up all in makeup like the, there's so many sets and parts and it just is it is just an an epic about one of the greatest composers of all time and i wanted to yeah. experience like i wanted to experience that with you can i push back on the way they don't make these like make movies like this anymore absolutely because this movie did remind me of a lot of movies i have seen so the from the costume drama elegance part of it uh i thought of like marie antoinette um, which was influenced by Amadeus um, in terms of the accents. In terms of a movie about like the obsession or like a certain like kind of rivalry, I thought of like Whiplash or Black Swan. Um, and then another a couple movies, and I know these are all like throughout the 2000s and not specifically in 2022, but this is the strangest one. But this movie also kind of <laughs> reminded me of like Heat or like Judas and the Black Messiah, where one character is really obsessed with this other character who is more genius at what they do, um, much to the like, ambivalence or unawareness of that character who is being obsessed over so i think 
like these stories get told, but maybe like there aren't, yeah, there are not as many period movies or if they are like this, it's like the last duel and there's battles and swords and stuff. So um, I think it, it's right. And, and also there's, there's parts of it that like still ring true. Absolutely. And I think that the thing that like separates this is like, those are all movies that have an element of Amadeus. Amadeus has all of those elements at the same time. Like they didn't have to pick between, do we want a, you know, an epic? Do we want uh, an obsession story? Do we want a period piece? Do we want a, th- a, mo- a, a biopic? We're going to do all of it. And we're going to do yeah. all of it to the 100th degree. Which I is guess maybe even crazy. like the most modern comparison is Elvis, you know, as in terms of a movie that is like maximalist, but that's Baz Luhrmann as well. So does that all said Amadeus is uniquely itself yeah. like, and crazy. So um, I, I, I'm not pushing back too hard on it. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I appreciate that. Like you're able to see other movies that were clearly influenced by this movie. Um, I think that's a sign of a great classic movie. What were some of your first impressions? <laughs> From the jump. Yeah. Insanity. Um, F. Murray Abraham is throwing heat as Salieri, even caked in all that aging makeup. I would argue that he is more compelling as that kind of off his kilter, older version of Salieri. Um, granted, he's doing more than he is whenever he's a younger man and more stoic and trying to keep his composure, but um, off the jump. And then speaking off the jump, the first time we really see one Amadeus, uh, one Mozart, he is literally chasing uh, like Constance around on his hands and knees like they are 15-year-old kids with a laugh that will become important but is nuts. It's just this high-pitched... Like, the thing that I think about with period movies especially is like all the pictures of them are stoic-looking because they're literally painted and they had to sit there. But you don't think of these people as like smiling or let alone laughing let alone what their laugh might have sounded like yeah um and a thing i texted you was that mozart's laugh reminded me of jonah hill's character in war dogs (laughs) which i know (laughs) is weird but i I just it was the where where my shattered brain went yeah no i think that's great so um mozart you know did have notably have an obnoxious laugh according to history but Tom Holtz, who plays um, Amadeus Mozart, created it after the director basically went to him and just asked for something completely extreme. He was like, have at it. Sky's the limit. Um, and I think that something that's funny is that Holtz says that he's never been able to make that sound off camera. Like that it only <laughs> comes to him like while they're filming, while he's in character, while he's in a scene in like the whole while he is Wolfgang. He can do it, but the moment like he's not, he just like can't get in that zone, which I think is great. That's yeah, that's totally understandable. I mean, to pull the veil back, I've attempted to do the laugh again. Like I maybe did it once, and then after that, it's just been completely falling apart. So the fact that he was able to hold it throughout the whole movie, um, shout out to Tom Hulse. It's great. It's so signature, like yeah. for for this movie that is about two of the most famous composers of all time for the laugh to be signature, I think is, is very funny. Yeah. And especially important that the movie ends with it because it's literally, and we'll talk more about the dynamic between Salieri and Mozart, but the movie ends with Mozart getting the last laugh, like literally, which is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else that has really like stood out to you? 
Um, quickly, I just wanted to point out, this is probably the loudest movie I have watched since 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, I just felt, obviously, the sound is important because mm-hmm. it's, it's fucking Mozart. But um, the opera is, was very, it was all very maximal um, and kind of visceral in the way they were kind of portraying all that. But um, the thing that also mainly stood out was, and probably my favorite scene in the movie, was the scene where they work together on the Requiem. And Mozart is dictating to Salieri. I love that when they're like working together because I feel like, like a true sign or, or stroke of mastery is being able to convey that genius to someone in a way that they can understand. Um, like n- not all the best athletes are great coaches, but th- the people who kind of specifically understand the game can teach it in a way that um, kind of conveys that knowledge. Um, and I just loved every all the little character touches in there. You know, we can get into the Salieri Mozart dynamic here, but um, when Mozart, it's coming so easy for him, and it's and it's too fast for Salieri. But eventually, Salieri starts to see it and like understands, like, oh my god, yes, I, I see what it's coming together. And Mozart, in a exhausted alcoholic stupor, is just putting together this beautiful piece of music, um, kind of too easily and it's so representative of the two characters and the whole dynamic that the movie hinges on yeah i mean he literally writes like one of his most famous pieces of music truly on his deathbed but one of the parts of that scene that i always think about when i watch it is that unbeknownst to f murray abraham holes Hulse was like very purposefully skipping lines while dictating the music in order to create this like illusion and impression that Salieri was not able to keep up with the genius of Mozart that like he got it and they were together on it. But Mozart was just on a completely different level. And like in order to like make that the most realistic, Hulse was like bouncing around in the script and was just like skipping entire chunks of the script in order to, for Abraham to be confused, which is why he's always like, what? You're, like, you're going too fast. Like, where are we? Like, what's going on? Like, a lot of that is genuine at the same time, which I think is very cool. That's awesome. That's amazing. I also love the part where Mozart is meeting everyone for the first time and Salieri had created a or had, you know, composed a little march, a little trifle, I think is what he called it. Mm-hmm. And Mozart kind of sight reads it and then starts playing it and then starts improving on it immediately. And because of the kind of character they're building and how natural it comes for Mozart's genius is like, Oh, this kind of, this sounds better. Let me, let me change this thing that you probably worked really, really hard on. And Salieri just has to eat it because objectively it just sounds better. Yeah. And, and that whole push pull is kind of the driving force in the movie. And it's fun because like, obviously Salieri has achieved his dream. Like he is a composer. He is a court composer. And he loves music so much. And because he loves music so much, he knows he's never going to touch Mozart. Yeah. I think that the that scene um, that you were talking about and the end scene with the Requiem are sort of parallels of this moment of their dynamic where, like, Mozart thinks they're on the same team. Yeah. Of, like, oh, you're the only one who gets it the way I get it so we can work together. Right. And Salieri is like... I actually kind of fucking hate you because you are no, (laughs) I'm nowhere close to you and I never will be, but I'm going to bask in your brilliance while also absolutely hating you. And like you said, like he just eats it because he knows that Mozart is right, but Mozart doesn't understand the dynamic that like Salieri is less than him. Right. And and that's kind of the, 
I don't know about heartbreaking, but the unfortunate thing is like Mozart, like you said, thinks they're working together, thinks they're peers. Salieri in in the entire court is probably the only one who understands how good Mozart is. Like yeah. a lot of people are pushing back like too many notes or, you know, um, it's too fussy or is this good enough? Or, or there's too many people singing on stage. But Salieri sees the genius. And if Salieri wasn't such a little je- uh, jealous punk, they could probably like he could probably have benefited and like created some more beautiful music and kind of achieved that uh, next level of composing that he he wants. But he's so enraged and so jealous that he can't get out of his own way and see that like Mozart likes him. A fun comparison I saw was Richard Brody of the New Yorker compared Amadeus with the Social Network. Um, and like the Winklevi twins being the Salieri in the scenario who just cannot keep up with um, the Zuckerberg character in the movie um, and kind of that they're just t- chasing their tail trying to keep up with this guy who could not care less about what they have to offer. That's a great comparison because it's very like uh, if you would have invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, obviously, part of uh, Salieri's frustrations also come from his like promised chastity. He's he just he's basically an incel like in this movie. Um, Honestly, if Salieri had fucked, maybe he wouldn't be so upset. <laughs> so I think that the religious notes of this movie add such a dynamic layer of especially especially at this time. You know, Salieri being like, I will give my whole life up for God. I will do anything in order to be this stroke of genius. And he's watching, you know, quote unquote, God speak through this like obnoxious genius that he can't stand. Um, And he's just praying over and over again, like, I will do anything to create one piece of music that is even on the same level as this guy. And continuously, as Mozart is becoming more and more famous, Salieri is taking it as a personal offense from God. And Mm -hmm. so to a way where he completely renounces his own religion in order to destroy Mozart, like that is how obsessed that he is. Um, and I think if he had not been such like a religiously dedicated man, which many people of that time, of course, were to the same extent, um, maybe he would be less obsessed with Mozart. <laughs> All right. What else have you thought about most since watching this movie? I think we can transition from Salieri and Mozart into F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse. I don't really have a, a relationship to either actor here. Um, Hulse is the voice of the Hunchback from Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he is also in my beloved Jumper, a movie that is probably not good, but uh, he is apparently in. Um, And then F. Murray Abraham coming off of Scarface um, in this movie, which is crazy. He is a busy man. You've probably seen at least six movies with him in it, not knowing it, unless you, I don't know, had seen Amadeus before this and knew who he was. But uh, of late, he's been in Inside Lewis Davis, Grand Budapest Hotel, and he was the voice of Khonshu in Moon Knight. Fired up. He got that MCU bag, but um, both these guys were were nominated for Best Actor, which is crazy. Like usually, you would expect like one or the other to go into the supporting category, but they were both the leads. Um, whether or not you believe that, like it doesn't matter because they were both nominated, so winners all around. Yeah, I mean, it really is. There are a few movies I feel like where there are truly two leads yeah um and this is one of them and a note that i had this time was while 
Tom Hulse also voiced Quasimodo and then did like all the movies, all the spinoffs, all the video games, like everything. Um, he's not that recognizable. So to me, he like really melts into this character. Mm-hmm. Like I have a another relationship with F. Murray Abraham. And while I'm watching it, I'm like amazed by his acting. But I'm like, oh, this is F. Murray Abraham versus Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think that that's always, always great. Yeah. And I think we could just say right now, like F. Murray Abraham is the one that he won best actor, which I think is spectacular considering usually if there's two actors from the same movie in the same category, it's kind of thought that they will cancel each other out. Like the votes will split um, for people who are a fan of that movie. And the fact that F. Murray Abraham was able to get his Oscar with his performance kind of speaks to the Titanic nature of it. Um, So obviously we picked these movies because of best picture winners, but you know, and it did win F. Murray Abraham an Oscar, but It kind of was awarded a lot. This movie won so many awards. So this movie got nominated 11 times and it won eight, including Best Actor, like we previously said, Best Movie, Milos Forman won Best Director, won Best Adapted Screenplay, um, and a few below-the-line categories as well, like makeup and and costuming. Best Original Score went to A Passage to India, but Maurice Jars was like, I'm glad that I couldn't go up against Mozart and he wasn't eligible um, because obviously uh, the use of sound and music in this movie is so critical and so deft. And obviously uh, the Academy acknowledged that because Amadeus won best sound. Um, But it was an interesting movie year. Uh, There's like classics such as like Paris, Texas, the natural um, personal favorites like Karate Kid and Ghostbusters are in this year. But at least to me, um, no movies that are like, oh, that one's a classic. But I guess that one is Amadeus. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say one thing about its Best Picture uh, award. It is one of four movies or four productions to win both a Tony Award for Best Play and Best Picture. Oh, wow. um, it is The Sound of Music, A Man of All Seasons, and My Fair Lady, along with Amadeus, which is just added to the list of awards that this thing has won that was amanda's theater corner oh there's uh, more there's more coming don't worry okay. <laughs> of course there always is um but so i went back and watched um some of the acceptance speeches um f murray abraham had a really lovely speech um and he got up there and he said the only thing that would make it better is if he had tom holst by his side on stage which i thought was really nice um, that's so sweet to throw that out there. And then he also said like half of this trophy goes to my wife. And then the best picture uh, award was kind of crazy. So um, Lawrence Olivier comes up on stage and he's kind of thanking the Academy for inviting him. And in the meantime, he's like opening the envelope and instead of reading the nominees, he goes, the winner is Amadeus. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And, and part of his, you know, at that point, Lawrence Olivier was quite old. um, And I I believe an official came up later to be like, yes, like, Amadeus did, in fact, win. Here were the other nominees. But um, when they accepted the award, they were just like, it's amazing to accept this award from Laurence Olivier. Um, yeah. And kind of acknowledge that. So uh, what, great, an, kind of what a, an Oscars cr- flub, man. Yeah, it was kind of like one of those crazy moments. Like, at least he read the right one, you know, with uh, hindsight. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he did a great job, I think. That's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. 
it's a fun clip to watch with that context because there's so much pomp and circumstance. Like Lawrence Olivier gets like a minute long introduction um, himself, which is kind of special. So you never know what you're going to get, but at least this one was a positive one. Let's keep having positive Oscars moments be the memorable ones. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I've thought about um, the most since watching is just the, the Amadeus to Marie Antoinette pipeline. Um I think Sophia Coppola and, and Jason Schwartzman kind of talked about how using the natural accents um, in Marie Antoinette uh, was influenced heavily by Amadeus and, and that whole same things. And you kind of can kind of see the comparisons in terms of the elegance and the grandioseness of the period piece with also this off kilter kind of almost crude humor. Like there's fart jokes in this um, again, Mozart's laugh is a choice in itself. And so um, you can kind of see the parallels and kind of where things uh, influence Marie Antoinette, um, you know, like 20 years later. I think it's like a, a great note because something that I thought a lot about while I was rewatching it was the simple language against this extravagant background is so great. It's such a good choice because you could have easily filled this with like, um phraseology of the time and made it like sort of like difficult to get through a little bit um but because the the script is so um i mean similar to casablanca like because the script is so easy that it makes it like very enjoyable to just kind of go along for the ride yeah and i think um you know the cliche right is music is a universal language and um you know it 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 doesn't get too fluffy other than whenever they talk about Mozart's music and Salieri when he's like talking about that first time hearing Mozart's music in person and he's like it was basic I just saw a bassoon but then above it an oboe mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that that whole little situation like I have also loved like a piece of art that much um, to kind of fluff the description so uh, I get it but yeah it, it's fun how that balance is there what were some of the first things you looked up about the movie after you watched it uh, so I looked up how much of this was true, and it turns out not a lot. Yeah. Um, a lot of it was devastatingly untrue. Uh, but first, what is true is that apparently Mozart was a humorous, childlike kind of dude. Um, like you said, he had a distinct laugh. Um, unfortunately, he was also broke when he died. Um, but in terms of stuff that's not true, uh, there was no real rivalry between Salieri and Mozart. Salieri himself had eight kids. Like, he did not have a chastity promise. So it was more just like taking these historical figures and putting them into a fun story, which is fine. Yeah. Um, Another thing I looked up was whether uh, Tom Hulse could actually play piano. And it turns out, yes, he could. He practiced for four hours per day. Um, He knew he couldn't really fake that part playing Mozart. And even the scene where they're at that party and he's playing upside down and backwards um, is him, which is sick. That is so impressive. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> reminds me of uh, the stories about Ryan Gosling picking up piano to do La La Land and John Legend being like, it is so frustrating how quickly this man has picked up piano. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's exuberantly impressive. <laughs> and and not only play it, but like play it with gusto and play it where he is, his personality is also shining through um, and, and kind of staying consistent with the character. Because it's really easy to play an instrument and like, focus on what you have to play but he's playing Mozart as a showman as a child as you know he's doing impressions of other composers so I think that was a particularly impressive 
portion of Hulse's performance. That was a lot of alliteration there. Um, and then the last thing I looked up was what happened to Elizabeth Barrage? Uh, she plays Constance. I really love her in this movie. I thought she had like this vibrating energy. She wasn't just a wet blanket. Um, she was really trying to support Mozart. I love that she calls him Wolfie because it kind of adds to the childlike nature of Amadeus. Um, but just some background on Elizabeth Barrage in terms of her getting the role. She got the role because Meg Tilly, who was originally cast as Constance, injured her leg playing soccer and production couldn't delay. And so her and Diane Franklin were up to replace her. And this is some Hollywood bullshit. Diane Franklin was not chosen because she was quote unquote too pretty. And Milosh wanted the story to have like less of that elegance other than um, the one student that Salieri was teaching like opera singing to. And uh, in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I really liked Barrage's performance and she's not in a ton of other stuff like her Wikipedia, like even her like career portion of the page is hella short um but you know she she's married she has a kid and i the her daughter <laughs> has joked on tiktok about being in film school and having to watch the nude scene of her mother and everybody kind of looking at her which i thought was <laughs> hilarious but um i thought it's too bad that uh elizabeth barrage wasn't in more movies that i have seen uh, and more performances i'm sure she has been living a happy life but um i thought her performance was pretty you know was she was i thought she met Tom Hulse and F. Murray Abraham. Yeah, and she's like a real fucking cutie too. Like that, I think she's very pretty. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any questions for me after watching this huge movie? Which performance do you like better between F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse? It's so hard because they're like bread and butter. Like you, <laughs> w- they complement each other in a way where they're both better because of it. Um, but I think creating. Mozart in a ridiculous way but not making him so ridiculous that you don't believe that you're like taken out of the film sort of uh Jared Leto in House of Gucci style where you're like (laughs) I actually now hate this that is like such a thin line to walk and he crushed it but it's only grounded because of F. Marie Abraham's performance so like they they really just go hand in hand but you know, back up against the wall if I had to choose, probably Tom Hulse. I, I feel the same. I think he uh, balances the charm and the dismay and the tortured genius, the child, um, the way he says Papa when his dad shows up, like um, all those small things. And granted, we're supposed to like Mozart more than we're supposed to like Salieri. Um, but I do think Tom Hulse just executed on some pretty difficult things um, very effectively. Um, did you have any other like questions or comments for me? Can we op- can we open it up to theater corner here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> I don't think I truly understood that this was a play before it was this movie. And as soon as I started re- like looking into it, I recognized the playbill. So I think somewhere deep in my brain I understood, but I did not pick this movie with the knowledge that it was based off of a play at all. Um, that was sort of something I learned in the research for this. So it played in London. Um, first presented at the National Theater uh, in the West End, which we've talked about before, in 1979. But in 1980, it premiered in Broadway, and Ian McKellen played Salieri, Tim Curry played Mozart, and Jane Seymour played Constance. That's incredible. 
It played for three years and was nominated for seven Tony Awards, including Best Actor for both McKellen and Curry, Best Director, Best Play, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting, and Best Set Design. And it won five of them, including Best Play and Best Actor for McKellen. That's crazy. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. So that's so fun. That is, that's crazy. That's wild. I know. And I really just didn't, I really didn't have a lot of idea about it. Um, We're opening blind spots everywhere here. Yeah. How did you like the movie? Would you watch it again? Do you think I'm crazy for making you watch this movie? Do you think people are crazy for liking this movie? How do you feel? You're not crazy for making me watch this movie. It is a beloved movie. It is uh, a, a classic, obviously. I enjoyed it. I, I honestly don't know if I'll watch it again. It was, it's a three-hour film, um, and it, it takes a lot for like a long movie like that for me to be like, I'm going to rewatch that. Granted, I've seen like Avengers Endgame like 10 times because my brain is shattered. I would say that um, I agree and I understand. Um, it's a very good sort of like holiday time movie, not yeah, in theme, sense. but in the way that like people rewatch all of the extended cuts of Lord of the Rings it's a similar well, idea. Well, it's also there's like it, it opens with it's snowing. There's lots of treats. Um, it kind of has a holiday vibe to it. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of classical music playing whenever it's the holidays as well. So yeah. it makes and sense. It's sort of like a movie everybody can watch and it takes up a lot of time while like mm-hmm. you're all together. So. Right. Yeah. Don't talk to your family. Watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. I mean, um, so, if you're going to watch Lord of the Rings for the 900th time, not you, but people, maybe throw I Amadeus still, in there as well. I still need to finish off uh, Return of the King, but uh, we'll get there. You got time. <laughs> I, I don't, though. The show starts in like a month. Um, anyway, as we round out here, uh, which movie did you like the most out of the two? It's so hard because while they are similar, they are so different. <laughs> but I will say for the sake of rewatchability... And for the sake of classicness, I'll go with Casablanca. Really? Yeah. This one's this one's for you, babe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll always have Vienna too, but um, <laughs> I mean, I, I pick Casablanca as well. Yeah, there we the go. Banger. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so those were what we watched. Great job by us. Fun chat. What are the next ones? But the next movies we're watching, we're sort of, I mean. These movies both could have fit in this category as well, I kind of feel. Um, but we're going, we're swapping some all-star casts, just movies where you're watching it. And you're like, I can't believe all of these people are in the same movie. Um, Avengers Endgame style, if we're going <laughs> to we're gonna do it that way. Um, but I am going to watch The Philadelphia Story for the first time. And Zach, what are you going to watch? I am watching Girl Interrupted. What do you know about The Philadelphia Story? Um, I know that uh, Catherine Hepburn is in it, um, and I know Cary Grant is in it, right? Um, yep. Those are. I know there's another very big famous man who's in it as well. I can't think of it off the top of my head. We've been doing a lot of talking about movies. A lot of actors' names have come up in the last couple hours, but um, that's really all. I, I know it's like a favorite of yours and a favorite of, I think, your sister's, um, but it is. I know it's one I have to see, and I know it's an older film. Um, the you're gonna laugh. The man you're forgetting is Jimmy Stewart. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> Good old James. Um, so Philadelphia Story is less of like 
an all-star roster, but more of like a big three. Okay. Uh, between those three, so I, I felt like it still fit. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh my god, these three people are in the same movie together. Um, type yeah. of all-star cast. So, uh, super excited for you to watch it. It's one of my comfort films. Um, we're still staying in black and white, but uh, lots it. of lore to talk about with uh, some behind-the-scenes stuff as well. Great. What do you know about Girl Interrupted? I know uh, Angelina Jolie is in it. I know this is like the 18th movie in which we are watching with Renona Ryder. I love Renona Ryder. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I've had any like stars repeat um, for you. It's not even um, that I love, like I do love Winona Ryder. It's just that you have not seen so many of her movies that I love. That's the thing. I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I get it. I get it. But, um, I, I, and I know it's a drama, but that's kind of all I know. Okay, I'm I'm really excited for you to watch it. Um, I had actually rewatched it for the first time in years a couple of months ago. I think it was on Netflix, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this movie is a banger." Um, and I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> Zach needs to see this movie." Nice. Um, and it was I put it in this list because as I was watching, I was like, "I can't like." I knew they were like a top few, but as it was going on, I was like, "Holy shit, that's like so and so who became so and so," and oh my god, that's somebody else that's like huge in this movie and and things like that. So. That's fun. Um, what is on your watch list? Obviously, Girl Interrupted, but what else are you looking forward to? Um, so after Petite Maman, I wanted to watch some more Celine Sayama movies. So I'll dubbed Water Lilies as the next one. That's uh, a young Adele Hanel, um, I think circa 2007. Um, I also want to watch Stage Door, 1937 movie. It has Katherine Hepburn, Lucille Ball, Ginger Rogers, um, a little dramedy, I think, if I understand right. And then lastly, there's a lot of movies and theaters I haven't gotten to yet. But uh, one I do want to watch is Marcel the Shell uh, with the shoes on. Uh, you know, I just feel like growing up when we grew up, it was such a pivotal uh, and important YouTube video. And I've heard nothing but the sweetest things about the movie. So um, I think I might steal steal away to, uh, to Marcel the Shell. What about you? I'm a massive fan of Jenny Slate. So I absolutely yeah. support you seeing Marcel the Shell. Um, on the complete, truly opposite end of the spectrum, um, the movie I'm going to literally watch in the next few days and I cannot wait to watch is Nope. Um, yes. it's going to be incredible. I don't even, again, I don't even care if it's like, fine. Like Jordan Peele's okay movies are better than most movies. <laughs> that's my <laughs> thought. So yeah, I'm very excited about that. I can't fucking wait for Bullet Train. Um, yeah, that's going to be super fire fun. Fire it the fuck up. It's coming out in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then, as you were mentioning, uh, Celine Siama, a, a director and screenwriter that I also really like, um, I had remembered that Girlhood has been on my list for a long time. Oh. Um, so I should probably get to that. And maybe we'll we'll have a little Celine Siama chat next time we're together. Would love that. We'll just be very peaceful in French. She's so sweet. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, we really appreciate it. You can always find a new episode of Blind Spotters on the second Tuesday of every month. Um, You can go back, listen to our old episodes. That's really fun. I did that recently. Especially do it with the bingo sheet now that it's out. Oh, yeah. See how many you can get. Um, You can follow the podcast on Instagram at blindspotterspod. Really trying to get to 100 followers, which I know is a low goal. But if you got a friend to tell them, share this, share our podcast with someone, subscribe, all those good things. And you can also follow us on Twitter at blindspotters. Um, Zach, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pot Club, and you can always find me on Letterboxd. What about you? 
If you'd like to send me any compliments, you can find me on all socials at Amanda Luberto. Remember, like, go with the bogey and not with the Tom Cruise. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it's actually funny because that I mentioned all fantasy everything because the episode that came out today is um, uh, people we think are aliens and my number. <laughs> I haven't listened yet, but if Tom Cruise is not the first pick, <laughs> I don't know what's up. <laughs> Honestly, the, the line reading I think of the most when it comes to Jerry Maguire is we live in a cynical world. Cynical. <laughs> <laughs> the movie has so many banger one-liners. <laughs> this it, is actually a podcast about Jerry Maguire. Yes, this is actually a podcast about Jerry Maguire. We have so many good lines. Uh, God, dude, we got to get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm starving. Okay. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will uh, be back next time. Go watch these movies. Go watch all the movies that have been nominated for, or not, not nominated. Let me hold on there. Go watch all the movies <laughs> who have won Best Picture. Some are better well, than maybe others. Maybe not even all of the ones that won. Yeah, yeah. Some are better than others. But these are two good ones. So we'll, we'll filter it for you. These are two good ones. And don't stick out your neck for nobody. Absolutely. Bye.